Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Steve Olsher, founder of Podcast Magazine. And if you want to build better relationships in life, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Steve Olsher, a 30-plus year entrepreneur. Steve is the founder and editor-in-chief of Podcast Magazine, the original chairman and founder of Liquor.com, an online pioneer who launched on CompuServe's Electronic Mall in, back in 1993. He's a New York Times bestselling author of What Is Your What? Discover the one amazing thing you were born to do. He's a real estate developer, creator of the New Media Summit, host of the number one rated podcast, Reinvention Radio and Beyond Eight Figures, international keynote speaker, an in-demand media guest who has appeared on CNN, Huffington Post, cover of Founder Magazine, and countless other media outlets. This is going to be a really fun conversation that I have with Steve. Um, so many things uh, to talk about and especially to highlight the podcast magazine, which I'm all about. 
obviously. But first, really quickly, for those of you who are podcasters and you wonder how I'm able to bring on some of the uh, amazing guests we've had here on the show, um, you're going to want to check out the new software that we put together called Guestio, uh, which you can find over at guestio.com. That's guestio.com. There's plenty of free profiles to browse through. There's even a few paid profiles that you can go on there, book some of the high-level experts and guests that you've heard here on the show. Go over there, create a free account and start browsing and booking guests today. That's guestio.com. Steve, what is up? Thanks so much for joining me on the show. It's been too long getting this to happen. So I'm happy that we're actually sitting down. Yeah, Travis, appreciate the opportunity. So I want to dive in. Everybody that heard your intro, your bio, obviously there's so many intriguing things in there and you've uh, been able to, to have a, a really illustrious career to this point. So I'm curious to hear how it all started. Let's go ahead and build some context for those listening. 13, 14-year-old Steve, you know, talk to me about where you were growing up. What were your parents doing? What was your life like back at that time? Yeah, man. So uh, probably in a corner crying, you know, as a 13-year-old, that's usually what I think most 13-year-olds do. Um, yeah. But after I picked myself up out of that corner and stopped crying, you know, it was uh, it was an interesting go because I, first of all, grew up just outside of uh, Chicago in an area that we called Skevinston, which technically was Skokie, but I went to all the Evanston schools. So uh, I was very confused as a, as a young man growing up out of the gate there. But that was really the and the embryonic stages of, of what has become my entrepreneurial career, because as, as for as long as I can remember, I mean, I've always been one who has been wired to try to rub a couple of dimes together and, uh, and get a quarter going out of all that. So, I mean, really, even in those early years, I was mowing lawns, I was raking leaves, I was shoveling sidewalks and driveways. I went and got my worker's permit when I was 15, just so I could start making some money. And I don't know, I just... I think it's people talk about whether or not entrepreneurs are, are born or, or made. And I just, for me, it's always been uh, just in my DNA. It's been a part of who I in, inherently am. So I, mean, I would say I was just a natural born entrepreneur and just wanted to learn as much as I could about business. Probably didn't hurt that my grandfather, who I considered my biggest inspiration uh, in my life, you know, there's others that have, uh, of course, inspired me over the years, but I was very close with my grandfather who was an entrepreneur. And I had the good fortune to be able to work for him for a few years before and with him before he died. But I just always have been around business conversations. So much so that even when my mom and I talk now, most of our conversations are around business, like what she's up to, what I'm up to, uh, and so on. So it's really been that that point of connection for us as a, as a family is just talking shop. Yeah, man, I just... I don't remember a time where I either wasn't trying to uh, build something that, that I had started or was just reading about or, or trying to learn about or connect with people uh, who, were, who were doing interesting things in the entrepreneurial landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any siblings? I do. Brother, sister. Part of the reason why I was probably crying in a corner is because uh, my brother was not the best dude in the whole wide world in and out of let's just call them mental hospitals for uh, most of his youth and uh, a bit of his adult life. And um, so it wasn't the nicest kid in the whole wide world to his brother, me, who was uh, about six years younger. And, uh, and my sister, who was six and a half years uh, older, almost seven years older. She, she was just much older than I was, obviously. And, you know, when you're growing up and somebody's in high school and you're in grammar school still. There's just only so many things you have in common. So she was, sure. she was around a bit, but, uh, but she was going through her own private Idaho on things. And uh, my brother made it difficult for, for the whole family. 
Yeah, it's always fascinating to me to hear, you know, because it seemed like for you, it was just like a no-brainer. Like I wanted to work, I wanted to make money. I just was kind of entrepreneurial. My, you know, my talk about it with my family, my grandpa, my mom, like something that we talk about and that we resonate with each other on. But it sounds like your brother and sister ended up doing completely different things. And so I always find it fascinating of like, well, why did this particular sibling end up going this particular path and these ones didn't when you know arguably grew up in a very same in a very similar or same environment and uh, so I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, so my sister never had an interest in, in doing anything from an entrepreneurship basis. I mean just didn't have it. It just wasn't wired that way. And my brother just couldn't make good decisions and as an entrepreneur, I mean you you just have to make good decisions in order to create something that's scalable and sustainable. So, you know, the reality is I think I'm a chromosome away from being a real, can I swear on the show? I don't know if we're- Yeah, are we, go for it, go for it. Okay, from being a real fuck up, you know? Like I think I'm <laughs> uh, maybe even not a full chromosome. I'm probably a half a chromosome away. So for <laughs> for some reason though, man, I um, I was able to take a lot of that pain and a lot of that, let's just call them, take a lot of those learning experiences and just- get real clear on, I don't want to have to really depend on anyone else. And I want to create my own destiny, whatever that destiny might be. And, and I was just willing to work for it. You know, I mean, I think that's the bottom line is, uh, as an entrepreneur, you just have to be willing to work for it. And I was willing to put in the hours. So what, where did that end up taking you through like college and early adulthood? So I started uh, playing the drums in fifth grade and played drums for uh, a number of years, all the way up through high school and, and ended up you know, doing pretty, pretty good on, on that particular instrument. But I got, I got the bug for music uh, really early on. And I was, if you know anything about Evanston, Illinois, it's, uh, it's a very diverse city. It's just outside of Chicago. Uh, our high school was probably 45% black, 45% white, and 10% other. Uh, and I was just heavily influenced by uh, black music growing up. I, my wife and I actually, we believe we were probably a, a, a black couple who was together at some point in a, in a previous life, but just always been really influenced uh, by black culture, black music, R&B, house, you know, the whole nine. And so I started DJing mostly Chicago house music uh, around my senior year. That led to selling off my drums and really going all in on DJing. And so I DJed in clubs and did the whole thing, mostly again playing Chicago house music for years until I was 19 when I got the bug to uh, open up my own club. And so obviously it couldn't be an alcohol-based club because uh, I was 19. Uh, but I ended up putting a business plan together and raising some capital. And at 19, just about 20 years of age, I opened up my own nightclub. So that was my first real foray into the world of entrepreneurship. And, uh, you know, learned, learned obviously a ton from it. But yeah, opening the nightclub was really my first go. I mean, I mean, that's such a big way to jump into it, right? I mean, that's like an all-in type of a move, right? I mean, you're not, this isn't like joining an MLM or becoming a real estate agent type of entrepreneurship. This is owning a nightclub. So what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned early on? Cash business is a good business to be in, <laughs> for one. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can do good things with the, with the cash-based business. So that's number one. Number two is no matter what you do, you just have to simply live and let go, you know, because what, what I learned very, very quickly is I could have had the, the best intentions in terms of what I wanted to happen between 
myself and my employees or myself and, and, and the, I actually uh, raised capital from one person. So uh, between myself and my business partner and then my manager and, and so on. And, and what I became very clear on in those early days is uh, you, you can have the best laid plans and, and, and the best performa and you can have, you know, just the, the best vision in your mind of what you think is going to happen. And the reality is no, no matter how you draw it up, it's never going to go to plan. And most of the time, not even close. Yeah. Why do you think so many others give up during that time versus people like you who stick in it and figure it out? You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a big, big disparity in the amount of people who start businesses oh, it's an versus easy the amount of people who stick with it, right? Yeah, it's an easy answer. And the answer is ego. Mm. I mean, period, end story. Because it's like um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he talked about how when you are a comedian and you create vernacular and the vernacular becomes mainstream so much so that it no longer is is yours right and and that's when you know you've made it where it's not just this is Jerry Seinfeld talking where it's not just you can make people laugh but you can then actually put people in almost in the, into your shoes in terms of using the vernacular that you've created and then it becomes their own and then it takes on a life of, the, of its own, right? Mm. And so I think what ends up happening for most people, if they do things well with their business, is that it becomes a, a property of their customer base, right? Or it becomes the property of their employees who really take ownership and then have a vision that only they can uniquely have, right? Because you can only come from your own perspective and you can only do what you can do based on the data and input that you've received throughout your life, which is inherently different than the data and the input that someone right next to you has received throughout theirs. So ultimately, I think that when you look at most entrepreneurs, they just hold on so tight. It's like trying to hold that handful of water, right? I mean, the, mm. you, you just can't simply hold that handful of water, period, end story. So they grip and they, they just get tighter and tighter yeah. and tighter around whatever it is that they saw in their mind as opposed to just letting it go and, you know, and just breathing and letting it really take on a life of its own that's reflective of what your customers and what your, your, your staff and in some cases your partners and investors and so on have as the new evolved vision of what it is that you originally created. Yeah, I think a lot of it too is having to do with just the severely inaccurate picture of what success really takes in that field. Like what, like the the expectations seem to be so through the roof comparatively to the amount of work they like think it's going to take. So so people will severely underestimate the amount of work that it takes and overestimate the amount of results that they're going to get with the amount of work that they're going to put into it. And so when they don't come close to reaching their goal at all, it's just like, well, this didn't work. Now I'm going to go back to my nine to five rather than just saying mm -hmm. like, no, I'm, I'm committed. Like I, I love that. The, the one quote that comes from Gary Vee that he talks about, which is people typically overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that that, that is, that speaks to why, you know, there's an elephant graveyard of entrepreneurs out there because I think so many people are just, they're in it for that, you know, even if they won't admit it, that they're in it for the get rich quick idea. Yeah. 
of like, this is going to take off and I'm going to see, you know, I'll be a multimillionaire next year. And, and you, they, they right. cling to the, they cling to the outlier stories of the people where that actually happened for them in their very first sure. business venture. And it's like, you can't use that outlier as the norm because that's not how it works for most people. Yeah. And if I had a dime for every Gary V quote that wasn't from Gary V, I'd have at least a dollar. <laughs> I was going to say, I wasn't even sure if that even originated from him, but, <laughs> uh, but he's the one that I've heard, I've heard it uh, spouted by the most for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So, so talk to me then about liquor.com. Uh, obviously mm. a pretty solid domain to have. <laughs> a pretty, Decent. Pretty, pretty, pretty good idea at the time. So, so talk me through the origin story and, uh, and then what led you uh, now into, into being Podcast Magazine. Yeah. So uh, before the Gary V hate mail starts coming in, probably from Gary, who's on my <laughs> phone here. And I've, I've just known Gary for a long time. And um, anyway, you talk about liquor.com. He and I crossed paths way early when he was in the wine library days and, oh, yeah. and, and right. so on. So I just, you know, I give him some hell every now and again. But uh, great dude. And, you know, obviously he's done amazing things with Wine Library and everything else. So the reality is uh, when I talked about my grandfather as being the inspiration for a lot of what I've done from an entrepreneurial perspective, uh, part of the reason why uh, I just so admired what he was able to do is, is his foray into the world of entrepreneurship actually was in the liquor business. And it just occurred to me about a week or so ago that what my grandfather did in terms of jumping into the world of alcohol beverages, right, and, and, and having retail stores and so on, very similar, actually, I think, uh, in, in some regard to what we're seeing now with the dispensaries. Like, I didn't even make that, that correlation mm. until recently. And I'm like, you know what, that's a lot of what he was doing way back in the 40s in terms of putting these retail stores together. So anyway, the point being, he was, he was a visionary. He jumped into the, the world of beverage alcohol long before there were typical retailers in the way that he created a retail environment. He ended up franchising those stores and created one of the first franchise models back in the, in the early, early 50s for foremost liquor stores. So I'm getting to a point here. So the, the, the business was going and going and going and going. I mean, little you know, ebbs, flows like any other business. But by the time the nightclub had kind of run its course, my mom had been working with my grandfather for a, about 20 years or so at that point. Uh, and my grandfather was getting much older. And my mom had invited me to come and join the business. And this, again, was the liquor business, which is pretty ironic coming from the world of creating a non-alcoholic nightclub, but <laughs> different different story. And so at the time, there was a very, 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 very small piece of that Foremost Liquors puzzle, which was called Foremost Liquor by Wire. And basically what Foremost Liquor by Wire was, if you think about uh, how FTD works for flowers, right? You're here, you want to send a bouquet of roses to your mom in, in LA or whatever, you call up FTD or a store and, and you get that delivered. Obviously, it's a little bit different now, but you, you know what I mean. So that's what we were doing with Liquor by Wire for booze. You were in New York, you want to send a bottle of uh, champagne to somebody in LA, you just close that deal, you'd call us, we'd coordinate that delivery through, our lo through one of our local retailers and we'd get paid a, you know, a, a commission, right? Or whatever you want to call it for, for consummating that transaction. So I thought that that had a lot of potential, but there was really no business there at all. I mean, if, if, if we did three orders in a week, like it would be a busy week for that. But I thought it had a lot of potential. So I said to them, you know, I'm not really interested in the retail side of the business. And this is 1991. So I'm not really interested in the retail side of the business, but I think there's something pretty cool here with Liquor by Wire. Let me see what I can do and I'll, I'll try to do something with that. And so 
we ended up launching a catalog. So 91, I came on board, we launched a catalog for Liquor by Wire. 93, I saw all these discs and all that fun stuff in the grocery stores for AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe and, and whatnot. I was like, well, this is pretty cool. You know, let me, let me check all this fun stuff out. And we jumped on that CompuServe bandwagon really, really early. So we took that catalog and we put it on CompuServe on their electronic mall and had one of the first uh, stores within their electronic mall. So I was, I was really deep into the online space really, really early. 95, we built a fully functional e-commerce site right alongside Amazon and about 400 odd other sites at that time. Uh, and then in 98, we had the opportunity to buy the liquor.com domain. And so there was a guy who was just squatting on it. He had liquor.com, he had bourbon.com. And you know, it was a pretty decent investment at the time. We're still a, a small business. We had sold off all of the foremost liquor store pieces after my grandfather's death in 94. But it was, it was one of those things where I was like, you know, I think there's, I think there's a lot of potential here. Mm-hmm. And we had already been doing pretty decent volume and been growing the business. And I just felt like, you know what, that's a category killer domain. Let's go ahead and pick that up. And so it was a stretch, you know, definitely a stretch. I will gladly share with you that we picked up liquor.com and bourbon.com for $7,500 oh uh, back in 1998. Uh, and then things started to explode. And we had uh, people wanting to throw money at us left, right, and center. And in March of 2000, we had the S1 filed and we were ready to go public. And uh, of course, everything blew up yeah. and, uh, and we had signed away our management rights to the company to go public and brought in all these lettered saviors, the CEOs, CTOs, CFOs, you know, WTFs, you know, all these useless <laughs> people that Wall Street wanted to see and our hands were tied. I mean, we really made a, a tragic mistake in signing over our management rights, but hmm. Wall Street said, you know, hey, we want to see more gray hairs. We want to see more seasoned executives, this, that, and the other. And push came to shove, couldn't go public. Had a bunch of money tied up in, in, in trying to take the company public. The CEO that was in place really turned out, you know, not to have a, a whole heck of a clue. And, uh, and within nine months, I had walked away from everything that we had built for nine years and walked away from everything, including the, uh, the domain. So, yeah, that was a pretty painful period in time. And, yeah. you know, kind of cut into the chase. I ended up reclaiming the domain, kind of a long story. And, Ended up selling it for four and a quarter million after I got it back. I made the first few payments, ended up bailing on the rest. So I kept the domain, I kept the money, put a team in place out of San Francisco to build it up again. And finally, in 2019, we sold it to uh, Barry Dealers at IEC. So there you go. Crazy, crazy stuff, man. And this is exactly what I was talking about. You buy the domain in 1998 and it leaves your possession finally in 2019 after crazy ups and downs that happen along the journey. And this, this is exactly what we're talking about earlier. Like you, you just, you can't get into this game if you're hoping to, to make a bunch of money in the next year and then dip out. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just not gonna, it's just not gonna work. There's too many lessons to learn. There's too many mistakes to make. There's too many people to get to know. It's a long process. It's, it's a, it's a journey. And I think that's yeah, I mean, at the same, perfect way at to the same, To the same token though, I mean, you, you have, Examples of companies that have done really, really well with with very short windows, uh, and and I do think that those possibilities still exist. Sure, and I don't want, I don't want to sit here and say that it's not possible for. I mean, my my cousin's the CEO of DraftKings, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, you you saw what they did in a fairly short period of time. Right, and yeah, and that's not to say that it, that it's impossible, but I think that just. Like the, the way that the way I kind of look at it, maybe you can kind of speak into this too, Steve, is that it's kind of like it's kind of like catching a wave, like like if, as a, as a surfer, 
on an, on a given day, you're, you're only going to be able to catch a few waves in a few hours of sitting out there, but a lot of it's just going to be paddling, missing a wave, sitting in the middle of the ocean, not sure what to do, waiting for the wave to come and then shooting your shot. You're not going to be able to, to make it every single time, but yeah. every once in a while that wave comes up and some people just got lucky in the fact that the first time that they tried, they happened to catch the wave. You know sure. what I mean? So uh, that, that's kind of how, how I, how I view it is, is um, the more opportunities you take, the more chances you'll have at catching that wave. And, uh, and, and you're a prime example of that. And it's just that some people happen to catch it on the first time, which, you know, yeah. good for them. <laughs> good for them. Uh, but don't expect that to be you because I think that more often than not, you'll be pretty disappointed and probably end up back at your job in the next six months if, if that's, you know, what, what uh, your goal is. So Sure. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So Podcast Magazine, uh, this is obviously uh, what, what you're up to nowadays, Steve. And uh, this is right up my alley and, and something obviously I talk about very frequently is the power of podcasting and, and how it's literally completely changed the way that I live my life. And uh, so talk to me about decision to get that started and, uh, and, and, and like why you wanted to serve the industry in this type of a way. Yeah, man. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And I mean, look, I've been involved in the podcast industry for a number of years. We actually uh, released our first episode of Reinvention Radio as a podcast in 2009. So I've just been a big fan of the space for a long time. And I, and I really love the fact that podcasting gives literally everyone the opportunity to ostensibly have their own broadcast channel, right? Where they can reach nearly anyone, nearly anywhere at, you know, pretty much any time. So 
it's it's just such uh, an interesting dichotomy when you look at broadcast radio, which to me was always the holy grail. Like when I was even in, in college and and throughout my early uh, years after college, even when I was doing the catalog stuff and liquor by wire and so on. To me, radio had always been the holy grail. Like if I could land a radio show, I felt like that's where I, I really would, would flourish and would really love to be. And so I ended up buying broker time on some stations and, and small stations, right? And so it was one of those things where if you weren't listening to that particular station on your dial at that particular moment in time, you would completely miss out on, on all of my brilliance. Right. And um, fortunately for most of Chicago, most of them missed out on all that. So the world <laughs> survives and goes on. But, you know, the reality is I was just like, man, there's such an opportunity here to move in this direction of, of new media, just kind of really seeing the difference between push media where everything's just pushed out at you versus pull media where somebody raises their hand and says, Hey, you know, I really want that. And I am choosing to download and listen to that. Right. And so I figured, you know, my God, there's, there's, this is just, this is, so cool. Anybody can have their own radio station. You can talk about anything you want. There's no censorship and, and so on. So I've just been a big fan of this space for, for a long time. And around 2016 or so, I started teaching about podcasts and started encouraging people to start their own podcasts. And then in early 2017, I got the idea to create an event, uh, which eventually became the New Media Summit, where we would give aspiring podcast guests the opportunity to take center stage and pitch a room full of podcast hosts on who they are and what they do and, and, and literally, hopefully, get booked on the spot. And so really early on when we started our first New Media Summit, I remember sharing the stat that there was about 400,000 podcasts in existence. And so I was encouraging people like crazy at that time to get in. Now, of course, I think, you know, there's 1.6 or 1.7 million podcasts. And so there's been you know, Forex odd growth over that last period of time. And so I kept doing my episodes of reinvention radio in 2018. We launched a show called beyond eight figures and, and again, really loving the space, but also recognizing pretty clearly that I wasn't going to compete with the Joe Rogan. I wasn't going to have the, the deep pockets that the wonderies and the iHearts and the podcast ones of the world have to, put that marketing and, and sales muscle behind their shows. And so no matter what I did, we gained decent traction, but it wasn't great, right, with our shows. Mm. And so what I had to try to figure out, Travis, was I had to try to figure out how do I become the hub of the wheel for this industry? How do I put myself in the conversation of podcasting without even being in the room to have those conversations? Mm. And so that was the fundamental question that I really sat down and started to pick apart and try to get to the answer to, which is first and foremost, and this is the, conver and this is the question that I think everyone has to be able to answer, Travis, which is, what is the conversation that you most want to be part of? And can you nail that down in one or two words, right? For you, maybe it's networking, maybe it's podcasting, right? But whatever it is, and even if you look at those two things, right? I mean, you've got the, the art of networking and everything that you do in that realm, and then you have your podcasting stuff. Even if you look at that, right? And just if you think about going into a room and there are, let's just say, Travis, that there are conversations going on at 10 different tables. And at each of those tables, there's a different conversation. So one table is talking about sports. One table is talking about business. One table is talking about podcasting. One table is talking about finance. One table is talking about networking, et cetera, et cetera. You can't sit at more than one table. 
And I love the old Chinese proverb of a person who, who chases two rabbits catches none, hmm. right? Yeah. And so that's what I see so many people in this space doing is they're trying to catch two or three rabbits. And so if you think about it from that standpoint, what conversation do you most want to be part of? What table I'm going to sit at that is having the conversation I want to be a part of? And then ultimately, how does my name or what I'm doing come up in those conversations at that table, even if I'm not sitting there? And so what I became very clear on was there was no way in hell that was going to happen for me. If I'm going to sit here and I'm going to say that our organization, the conversation we most want to be a part of is podcasting, I knew very clearly that we were not going to become the hub of that wheel. We were not going to become a part of that conversation around podcasting based on the merits of our shows alone. So something had to change. And that's where the idea of Podcast Magazine came in, which is, you know what? There's a lot of great things out there for podcasters but nothing that's really focused on the podcast fans, right? So what if we created a magazine that was really geared towards podcast fans, hmm. where we took people beyond the microphone and deeper into the lives of the podcasters they, they know and love, and then to also introduce them to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows that they probably haven't heard of, but should be listening to. So how can we really help become, you know, like just think about it this way. It's like, how can we really help level the playing field while also becoming the, the sports illustrator, if you will, of podcasting, like what they do for sports or what Wire does for technology or what Vanity Fair does for celebrities. Do we have that opportunity and ability here to create something that is very different than anything else that is currently available and puts us at the hub of the wheel so that no matter what area, so to speak, of the industry or what part of the vertical you play in, you're going to want to be a part of what we are doing. And that was the basis of creating Podcast Magazine. And now we've actually got a much bigger picture, which I can share for you. But that's a lot to unpack. So let me just stop there. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear more about the bigger picture as well. Um, and then we'll kind of uh, kind of get into a couple other uh, things about relationships and, and, uh, and how you're able to build out, you know, a lot of the things that you've done with Podcast Magazine so far. Yeah, so I'll just give you a quick uh, overview. So what we've become very clear on, again, is that the conversation that we most want to be a part of is podcasting. Okay, so we're clear on that. And Podcast Magazine, obviously, is, is a piece of that puzzle. But we, we really, we have become much clearer over the last six months that while Podcast Magazine is awesome, it really represents just one piece of a bigger picture. And so the bigger picture for us is an entity that we call Ear Control. And so Ear Control is kind of this parent company, this umbrella piece, if you will, under which there are four distinct pillars. The one pillar is our media pillar, which includes Podcast Magazine, our email subscriber list, the website traffic, our social following, et cetera. The second pillar then is our, our own network of shows. So we launched our first show on that network called the Hot 50 Countdown, which is basically our Casey Kasem style countdown show, which is based on the fan voting that we receive and you then see the Hot 50 countdown in each issue of Podcast Magazine. So it's based on fan nice. votes. It's not based on downloads or subscribes or reviews or any of that crap, right? It's just based on fan voting. So now we start to tie some of these pieces together and we'll launch under other shows under the network as well. The third pillar is our live events. We had been doing the New Media Summit. That will evolve into what we're calling Pod Expo. And so Pod Expo is going to be a fan-facing event, very similar to what you might see at a Comic-Con type event, where it's really fan-focused and give the fans the opportunity to connect with uh, the podcasters that they know and love and others, of course, that they mm, should know and love, right? So the live event is the third piece. And then the fourth piece, 
uh, is technology. And so we're actually developing an app that helps to solve the discoverability problem for both podcasters and for podcast fans. And so all of these things, Travis, then work together. The magazine feeds the live event. The live event feeds the, you know, the, um, the network of shows and the app. The app feeds the magazine. And then just all becomes very intertwined and complementary. And so that's the bigger picture around ear control of which podcast magazine is one of those pieces. Yeah, I love that, man. There's so many cool things that you guys are doing with that. And I love the uh, the design look that, that you're going for and the different uh, uh, people that you've had on the cover already uh, so far. I'm curious to know, I mean, there's so many questions to ask about the podcast magazine stuff, uh, but sure. we're running a little bit out of time. So I want to ask a little bit more on the relationship side of things. How have, I mean, you've now been in business for multiple, multiple decades and seen a, seen a lot of, <laughs> yeah. And, and seen, seen a lot of success and, um, and been, you know, come up against a lot of walls and obstacles as well. Has there been any standout relationships that have kind of helped you navigate those waters a little bit more effectively? Um, especially coming into something like, you know, podcast magazine, it's completely different than what you were doing before. And you had some experience there, but it's a, it's a whole new thing. So I'm just curious to, to, to hear uh, how, how your uh, relationships have been able to affect the successes that you've had. Yeah, I, I mean, look, the, obviously, we don't, as entrepreneurs, we, we don't and shouldn't and can't build anything by ourselves. I mean, point blank, right? Period, end story. So it depends on the business. And, and I've been fortunate along the way to, to generally have people who understand what it is that I'm looking to do and to uh, really enroll them in the vision of what I have for whatever that endeavor is at that moment. And so whether it was going to uh, someone who had owned a nightclub and talking to that person about the nightclub, the magazine, talking with someone who has had success in the landscape of magazines, advisory boards, of course, have, have been formed uh, over the years, and those have been super helpful. But I, I also think that, you know, again, this just goes back to a lot of what we were talking about earlier, Travis, is just being able to, to lay out the vision and enroll people in that vision, and then being willing to, to let go and say, what do you see here as being possible for, for what it is that we're doing, whether that conversation is with a potential investor or whether mm, it's with a key stakeholders such as an employee or a partner, whoever it might be, you know, at, at every step along the path, being open to seeing someone else's vision for what it is that you've created, I think has, has really taken on, uh, in, in many cases, a much better form than anything I would have created on my own. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is the question that I ask everybody that comes on the show, Steve. Um, and it's along the lines of what, of what you were just saying. So curious to hear your answer here. Who you know or what you know? Which of those two is more important and why? Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt at all about that. I mean, it's the who. And, uh, and there's, there's plenty of people who've been talking. It's kind of one of those catchphrases, buzz terms, whatever you want to call it. But mm -hmm. you, know, you don't solve for the what, you, you solve for the how. And to solve for the how, you solve for the who. <laughs> Sound like yeah. Dr. Seuss. Um, <laughs> but you know, reality is uh, the, the who is always going to be better than the Rolling Stone. No, never. Um, but, you know, the who is always <laughs> going to be the solution that you're, that you're looking for. Someone 
has the answers that you need. It's just, it's just as simple as that. Well, look, man, this has been a really fun conversation. I feel like I'm saying this at the end of like all of my calls now is like, we, we should probably do a round two of this at, at some point in the future, but we do, do got to move into the last segment. Some like to call the random round, just quick, random questions, quick, random answers. You ready? What profession other than your own, do you think that it'd be fun to attempt? You know, I gave up on EDM and Chicago House and all that fun stuff right before everything started to take off. So I would love to be able to spin in front of 100,000 people. Like I, I would be on that in a heartbeat. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and chat for an hour, who would it be? Ah, that's easy. That would be my grandfather. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? Yeah, ironically enough, I, um, I I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't watch a ton of videos. For me, honestly, the, con- the, the content that I consume is primarily on a big big screen with me and my recliner. So does NFL count? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Oh God, I'm awful. And I just, we actually just interviewed uh, uh, Hal Elrod and had him on the cover of Podcast Magazine for our December issue. Oh, nice. That guy's got his mornings down pat. Me? Nah. Alarm goes off. First thing I do is I check email. Then I go and I sit on the can for a while and finish a lot of the email. <laughs> and I'll take my shower, get ready for the day, do my morning workout, which is basically just 75 push-ups and, uh, and some stretching. And then every day I go to the coffee bean and tea leaf and I grab a 32-ounce iced tea and a chocolate croissant. <laughs> nice. It sounds like a pretty solid routine to me. I don't know. What is your go-to pump-up song? Oh, uh, I'm going to throw one at you that I know no one's ever thrown at you because this is going deep into uh, the Chicago house sound. I'm a big fan of, of really soulful music. So uh, check out Soul Central's Strings of Life. What is something that you are just not very good at? I think parenting. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> man, you know, as much as I like to think I'm, uh, I'm a decent dad, I got a lot of room for improvement. It's a puzzle for sure. <laughs> it's a puzzle. Oh, no, there's, no, there's no puzzle on that thing. It is there's a Rubik's Cube that I've never been able to solve. <laughs> as we get everything wrapped up here, Steve, what's one place online where we can go to connect with you more? Good question. I, I think let's just, well, if you want to join us for the podcast magazine journey, I'll give you a backdoor link to get a free lifetime subscription. Podcastmagazine.com slash free. Podcastmagazine.com slash free. Head over there to get a free lifetime subscription, guys. Free lifetime subscription. If you're a fan of this show, I know that you are a fan of podcasts in general and you're going to want to head over to podcastmagazine.com and check out some of the things that they're putting out. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show today, man. This is a lot of fun. Uh, Like I said, we should probably do a part two sometime. Sounds good. Appreciate you having me. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.